I am glad that you are here today. I'm glad you've come to worship Christ along with us. Let me pray for us and we'll get in. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to come and um, hear your word. Thank you, Lord, that you communicate to us through it on a daily basis. And I pray that you give us a thirst and a hunger to do that, to come and hear from you and to to seek after your wisdom for our life uh, as we are uh, trying to walk this out, as we have so many questions that bombard us each and every day, Lord, but you are perfect and good and you've already spoken to us. And I thank you for your spirit that dwells in us, that gives us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to receive this truth. So I pray, Lord, that we seek after you, uh, the one who has created all things. Uh, Be with us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so today uh, I'm going to be preaching through Ecclesiastes 6. So if you want to open your Bibles there, uh, I would appreciate it. If you're going to use one of the Bibles in front of you, it will be page 521. Um, As you turn there, I do want to mention something that you've probably already experienced or recognized as we've made our way through this book of the Bible, as we've been in Ecclesiastes for about a month and a half now. The writer of Ecclesiastes is a bit schizophrenic, right? He's a bit back and forth. And I say that because as we read or study this book of the Bible, what we get is one paragraph from a guy who seems to be disillusioned with the meaning of life. And then in the very next moment, he is sort of figuratively letting it all go and uh, submitting himself, allowing his heart to be bent in the direction of trusting in the Almighty God, who is sovereign over all things, who who has a perfect perspective because he's in heaven. He goes back and forth pretty, pretty quickly. Now, I wish I had a clear answer for that because here in chapter 6, he does it to us again. All right? he, he does that to us again. If you remember from last week in chapter 5, I said that the writer or the preacher, as he calls himself, was mainly talking to the kind of people who enjoyed worship who liked to go to church or liked to go uh, to the temple at that time and worship God. But now, here in the very next chapter, even almost in the same breath, they're they're very closely connected. In the next chapter, he's speaking, um, he's talking to people who only understand life in regards to what is under the sun, the things of this earth. Here in chapter 6, he's speaking from the perspective of a person who knows nothing about God and who can only process life from a human perspective. All right, so last week we had people who believed in God. This week we have people who don't believe in God. Hence the phrase that he uses, what is seen under the sun, which is limited, because it's not the knowledge that is from above. All right? So as you listen this morning, as I read the entirety of chapter 6, try to hear what he's saying with that perspective in mind, because I think it'll help us understand the truth that we can actually draw out from this chapter. And with that said, if you would please, as we do each week, please stand with me in reverence for God as we read his word. This is Ecclesiastes 6, verses, well, 1 through 12, all of it. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than often he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, 
and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is from his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. Whatever has come to be already been, whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with the one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his life, of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? This is the word of the Lord. God, have a seat. Let me pray for us again. Father, this passage, although poetic, is challenging to understand. Lord, it is, uh, it's going to speak to us directly in a way that, um, even as the world does, and I pray, Lord, that you give us an understanding that is of you and not of the world, that you help us to, to turn from ourselves, to turn from the things that our hearts might desire as they, lack th- they, they desire things that, that lack you in them. I'm grateful, Lord, that we can come together as a church to be honest with, hu- with humble hearts to uh, lay our, our, our needs and our wants before you and that you fulfill them. We trust you and love you. Thank you for your spirit. Give us understanding today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before I get into um, really the meat of this sermon, I want to briefly address some of the language that the writer used around the possible course of events when it comes to a baby being born. And I felt like I wanted to do this because I know that this example that he uses will strike all of us a bit differently because some of us have experienced incredible heartache when it comes to a child being born or in regards to the birth of a child. And even though it's in the Bible, language like this can offend us sometimes because it seems sort of flippant in the way that it uses this very evil circumstance. So in regards to that, what I want you to know is that I'm sorry that you've gone through that. You know some of my story. Um, I'm sorry that you've gone through that, and when you're here, while you're here, as you are part of us, you never have to pretend like that pain doesn't exist. You'll never have to pretend like life is harder because of what you've gone through. But we do have to go forward. We do have to to go on, and even though certain words and phrases stir emotions and they stir memories, what I hope for all of us is that we're going to be able to hear what the writer is actually trying to get at, because there is good truth here. There is good truth to be known in this chapter, in this book, because it is God's Word, and God is always good. Amen. So even though we hear words that ping us and strike us and trigger us, realize there's good here because it's God's word and he is good all the time. Okay, now to turn into the text, all right, not to just move past, but to turn into the text, I'll say it once again that I want us to recognize 
that the viewpoint that the speaker here, the writer here, is, 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 is coming from is a limited perspective. Here in chapter 6, it is a limited perspective, and we know that because of the way that he begins chapter 6, because of how he begins the chapter. Verse 1, this is what it says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. It's only after that statement, his sort of qualifier, that he then goes on to make his observations known. Now, I'm making such a big deal out about this because ultimately the perspective that he is taking, that the writer is speaking from, it's weak. It's a weak perspective. It's weak in the way that it's only, um, it, it's only about what can be understood through living a life here on earth. That's the perspective that he's taking. Again, it's, uh, it's why, again, this chapter seems sort of out of place in the Bible as well at first glance, like it's in despair, like this person is just absolutely in despair. Think about verse 12. Verse 12, which is the last verse of the chapter, the writer asks two questions. He gives us his observations, and then he asks two main questions that a worldly perspective just cannot answer. He asks, what is good in life? After you've sort of pondered everything, what is good in life and what does it all mean? Both are incredibly common questions, though. Both are common questions that every person at some point will ask, which is why the way that I'm going to approach this chapter is I'm going to try and process through what the writer is observing, and then I'm going to go back and try to answer those two questions with the proper perspective, which is from what we know of by the full counsel of God's Word. Okay, so we're going to look at what he has to say, and then we're going to try and apply what we have in Scripture. Now, Let's go back to the top and try to understand what the writer is saying. So if we look at verse 2 and 3, here once again, he brings up things that we all wrestle with in this life. In verses 2 and 3, he once again brings up what we all wrestle with in this life, just like he did last week in chapter 5. He's talking about power and wealth. He's talking about material, uh, material possessions, but this time he brings up something new. This time he brings up honor. He brings up the idea of honor. Essentially, he's recognizing that all people of the world desire a degree of popularity or what could be called fame. All right, now he's not uh, directly talking about celebrity, but obviously in today's world, that is a, it's a pretty applicable connection. Rather, what he's talking about is being known of. We all desire to be admired, which when it comes to wealth and power, whether that's done well or not, seem to go hand in hand in our world. Then he admits that even if a person is given all of those things, there's a hard ability to enjoy them. He says is actually isn't the ability to enjoy them. Now, why would he say that? Why would he say that? After all, last week when he was talking about those things, he said that we could enjoy them. Here's our schizophrenic attitude all over again. Last week he said there's power and wealth and, and, and joy in that that you can have. But now he says there's power and money and uh, possessions and honor, but you can't enjoy them. So what's the difference? Can we enjoy it or can't we enjoy it? Well, I think the indicated difference is whether or not the person recognizes where all that they have actually came from. Right? In chapter 5, 
At the end there, I think it was 19, chapter 5, verse 19, it was known and understood that all things came from God. But here in chapter 6, it seems as though this sort of person in the perspective that he's taking believes that they did it all themselves. That they are the ones who acquired these things. The saying goes like this, I'm a self-made man. Or what about, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Here's a famous one in the church, God helps those who help themselves. The sort of perspective is limited. It's limited, which is why I say that it's weak. You see, believing in or relying on our own strength doesn't prove to the world that we're strong. It shows everyone that you're self-centered. Only by Christ's death does the church exist for God's glory and our good. We need one another. That's why, part of why the church exists. Now, in verse 3, when the writer talks about having 100 children, or later on in verse, uh, or verse 3, he talks about having 100 children. In verse 6, later on, he talks about living for 2,000 years. He doesn't actually expect to have that many kids. He doesn't actually uh, imagine that he's going to live that long. What he's doing, rather, is he's using hyperbole to talk about wealth and to talk about honor. Because you see, in Israel at that time, many children or a long life was evidence of a blessed life. But in this man's eyes, and because of how he evaluated life, which was through the value system of the world, again, what's under the sun, he concludes that even if he had those things, even if he was wealthy, and even if he had all the honor, even if he had those things, he wouldn't be able to enjoy them because in the end, he wouldn't be able to keep them. Which is why at the end of verse 6, he asks, really with an empty heart, Do not all go to the same place? That place being death. Do not all die? So what is it all worth? The agony that he might have felt for the stillborn is replaced by his own selfish pride. He's angry that he was forced. He was the one who was forced to suffer and toil and work through life when in the end... What did he get from it? Nothing good, he said. I went through all of that, and what did I get from it? Nothing good. Again, with an empty heart, he then reflects on his life, and he imagines that that he would have been better off if he had never been born at all. I wouldn't have had to go through all the things I went through. I would have been better if I wasn't born at all. Now, I'm going to ask this because I believe we all feel this way. Have there been times in your life that you have felt purposeless? In feeling this way, the writer goes on, look at verse 7. He says, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. But what advantage has the wise man over the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity in striving after the wind. We work to keep ourselves alive. We work to continue to provide for ourselves the life that we live, but the point that he is making here is that it is never enough. 
Even if we achieve something, even if we do have relative success in this life, it won't fulfill us. It won't fulfill us. And although it sounds backwards, our satisfaction is empty. And you know that that is true because even when we achieve with our own hands something in this world, it never satisfies our deepest need. Which is why he continues to ask questions. He's, he's striving for things. He continues to ask questions in verse 8. He asks, does a wise person have an advantage over a fool? Does a poor person actually gain something if he or she learns how to improve their lot in life? And his answer in verse 9 is a bit cryptic, but essentially what he says is that it depends on what they are motivated by. If their appetites wander, if they're focused on the right thing, if they're not focused on the right thing, then no, they're not better off. But as it is, through the eyes we get to see is if we're given proper sight from God, then yes, we can recognize what is true. There is a benefit if you are motivated by the right thing, and then we can understand and enjoy the life that is around us. We talked about this last week. Now, in verses 10 and 11, I imagine that the writer, in a way, after making all of these questions or pondering all of these observations, he is sort of just throwing his hands up as if he's sort of over it. Verse 10 and 11, he's throwing his hands up. He's sort of over it. After all of his pondering and after his extra questions, he basically comes to an impasse. He comes to an impasse with his thoughts. He says, whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with the one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? Essentially, man is who he is. And there is no escaping our limitations, and we cannot fix the world's problems. It's just not for us to do. Now, in that, we might want to debate God in the way that Job did, but, you know, Job 38 through 41 shows us how well that goes. We might even at times then live a life that will pretend that God doesn't exist like the world would. But to what advantage would that be? Nothing. Because regardless of our own thoughts or our own wants, even our own abilities, God will always be greater and stronger than we because He is the beginning and the end of all things. He is the one that created it all. He is the one who has authority over all. So as our writer slash preacher ponders his own questions, he asks these two questions again, verse 12. Who knows what is good in life? And who can tell man what it all means? Those are his big two questions. Who knows what is good in life and who can tell man what it all means? Actually, when you look at it that way, he might not actually be in despair. When you actually listen to his questions and not uh, presume how he feels, he might not be in despair. It could be that he's asking these questions because he's right where God wants him to be. 
Maybe this person who holds this perspective in chapter 6 is finally asking the right kind of questions in the right kind of moment because he's come to the end of who he is. He's come to the end of himself. I can't do anything. I am who I am. He's recognizing his own limitations, how weak he actually is. And he asks, who is the one who can answer all things? If I can't do it, who is the one who can answer all things? Now, here's a reality that we all live with that we actually might be blinded to. Any society that is blessed as we are with incredible wealth and great abundance, we must take special care to not make our appetite our God. The more we own, the greater the temptation that we face to make what we have to be our source of joy. What is good? Rather, I ask it with a question. What is good? What does it all mean? Only Christ can answer that. Only Christ can answer that question rightly and actually satisfy it for us permanently. Permanently. For the man in chapter 6, every door under the sun seems to be slamming shut as he's facing death. He's looking back at his life wondering what does it all mean and every single door under the sun is slamming shut except for the door of faith. That's always open. It's available. We all feel as though we were made for something more because eternity is literally woven into us. That's Psalm 139, right? Eternity is literally woven into our makeup as we are image bearers of God and we long for something greater because we are made for a different place. Who knows what is good? Well, logically, the one who created all things to be good. Right? Now, when we think about that, the good news of the gospel doesn't start at the cross. Of course, it includes the cross, but it begins with creation. It actually even begins before that. What is good? Who knows what is actually good? We have to look to the one who is before creation. Look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 10. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. That's the good news. That's the gospel What is good in this life? Christ is good in this life. He is the one who created it. He is the one who gave it to us. 
This passage that I just read also shows us who is available to us in Christ when we ask, what does life mean? Again, logically, the person that we ask is the person who is the source of life. Who is that person? Again, it is Christ. We need to listen to the one who spoke it into existence. What is the purpose of man? To glorify God in all the things that we do, whether that be to eat or the way we work or the relationships that we keep or like we talked about last week, the way that we worship. We are to do all things to the glory of God. That's 1 Corinthians 10. We do all things, everything that you do to the glory of God. Now, the writer is correct, though. We all will face the same thing. We all will have to wrestle with death. But in regards to that, listen to the one who made life, okay? I'll end with this. Listen to the one who made life. John 3, 16 through 20. For God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The life that we have has been given to us by Christ. And just in that reality, now we know what is good and what our purpose is. To do all things for his glory and our good. Maranatha, I pray that that is true of us. I pray that this world looks at us and they see that in us. They see Christ through us as well. I pray that that is true for everyone that we get to share this truth with as we live our life. Your faith doesn't exist in this building. It exists everywhere that you go. The Holy Spirit exists within you. It dwells within you. Everywhere you go, God is with you. His presence is with you. I pray that everyone that we get to meet with, that we share this truth with, And that they too respond in faith because we can see and believe that it is our true joy to live for Christ and our good purpose to follow after His will. We know what is good, it is Him. We know our purpose, it is to follow. If you would pray with me. Father, we, even as that sort of washes over me, Lord, I'm so grateful. I'm grateful that we get to do this, that you, that you use us, those who, who continue to turn from you, to continue to uh, respond poorly to the love that you pour out for us. Lord, you are so patient and good, Lord. Grateful you've brought each of us to our end. And we see that we are sinners and we were enemies of you, but you reconciled us because of your love and grace through the work of your son. And I think of so many people in my life who don't know that truth, who do have the perspective of the world and are searching for meaning and purpose and satisfaction from a place that cannot 
provide that. I pray, Lord, that you empower us, that you, you light a fire in our bones of, to go and share the good news, to be people who speak of your Son and glorify him in all that we do. Again, Lord, thank you that you use us. It is a great honor to be your humble heralds of your truth that you've declared. Thank you for wisdom that is from above, that we don't have to be lost with things under the sun. It's in your son's name we pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.